all good. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Wow. Hey, y'all are so uh, awake today. It's unbelievable. It's as if you got one hour less of sleep or something like that, right? And uh, you all are the early morning uh, risers, so we're glad you guys are here today. Hey, I want to start by giving you three announcements uh, this morning. And the first one is uh, VIP weekend. And we made up these cute little VIP cards because April 2nd, we're going to have a special day here, all right? Our goal is we're going to have 300 people. Our goal is that we would be inviting uh, friends and family to come in, and it's going to be a lot of fun. People are going to ask, does this stuff happen at your church every weekend? Because it's going to be like Oprah. We're going to be giving stuff away, you know? But since you all are kind of insiders, you need to know that's because if we're going to get their name and email, rather than having people come in and we go, hey, right away, give us your name and email, we're going to say, hey, if you would like to have a uh, Kindle Fire, give us your name and email. See, it's all, it's all good. Uh, there will be, uh, we'll be rolling out the red carpet. There'll be, there'll be even better coffee. You know what I'm saying? And um, bless you, my goodness. And, uh, and then there will be, uh, there'll be a lot of fun things that happen that day. And uh, besides that, there'll be an awesome worship experience and, of course, uh, a message that day that applies to everybody. And we want to encourage you guys to be inviting people. Now, we have a 1,000 invite cards. So if you're going to take one, make sure that you take it and give it, okay? Don't just take it and put it in your dashboard. Take it and give it. It's to be given to somebody else, and I want to encourage you to, to do that. The second thing is, uh, on March 25th, the weekend before that, we have a work day here. And, uh, and so you'll be hearing more about that. But go ahead and put that on your schedule for the morning of March 25th. We're going to be doing some work outside and inside to prepare for that day. And then all of you who serve in a ministry, March 26th, we're going to be having an Excite meeting for all of our leaders at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. And uh, just put these things in your calendar. Uh, if you're all ever curious about what's going on around here, go to our website. And uh, by the way, thanks to Jess and our team, we have a new website. You guys can check that out. And, uh, and uh, you can do that after the message because many of you will be on it right now on your phones. All right, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, can we? God, thank you so much for just the opportunity to be here today. And thank you for everybody who uh, makes it a priority to be in church together. And uh, God, thank you for just good relationships, good friendships. And God, thank you for the word of God that teaches us and that gives us instruction for our lives. How to live, how to parent, how to love. And, of course, how to, uh, how to know you more. And, God, I just pray for the message today that as we learn together, we would be more biblically grounded. We would understand more about what you want for our lives and what happens in the life to come. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, get ready. This is a little bit more of a teaching message today, but uh, it's super important because what I've learned in just talking to people and uh, interacting with people is we are less and less biblically grounded today than ever. And what I'm learning is, as I see people, I interact with people, they, uh, they may enjoy church, but they may not know the fundamentals. They may not know the basics of the Christian faith even. And so uh, what we're going to do today is talk about uh, a topic that, that every one of us has asked questions about, every one of us has wondered about. But I want to lead into it by talking about the Gospel of Luke. You know, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for a little while, and, and uh, actually since Christmas time, we're going to lead through Easter in the Gospel of Luke. And we've talked about Jesus' undeniable power through his miracles, through his teaching. We've talked about his uncommon grace and mercy for mankind through stories like last week, the prodigal son. And for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about how Jesus is an unrivaled king, that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You know, no kingdom that has ever existed 
has been an everlasting kingdom. Uh, Kingdoms rise and fall. Nations rise and fall. There has never been a nation on the face of this earth that has ruled and reigned for all times. The Greek Empire rose to prominence and power and reached its zenith under Alexander the Great, but it fell to the Roman Empire in the Battle of Corinth in 146 B.C. The Roman Empire, as vast and as powerful as it was, fell after 1,000 years of dominance. The same can be said for the Persians, the Russians, the Spanish Empire as well. And yes, even our own beloved America has, has its time in the sun, but... Uh, The more we turn our focus away from God, I wonder if the sun is beginning to set on that time as well. I pray not, but we learn this. Every nation, every nation rises and falls, but there is only one eternal kingdom. 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter, chapter 1, uh, verse 10 through 11, he writes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. His reign is everlasting. It really began before time began. We were created as a people of God in the beginning. And then we rebelled against God. We decided that we would follow another influence. And the Bible calls that our enemy, the devil or Satan. But God had a plan to take us back into relationship with him. That plan is called the gospel. It's the good news plan. It's how God came into our world, paid our penalty, died for our sins, defeated death on the third day when he rose again, and defeated that influence of Satan. And so when he resurrected from the grave, he proved that even our greatest enemy, death, should not be feared. And so today, we're going to talk a little bit about this question of Jesus' eternal kingdom, and this question, what happens when we die? We're going to answer that. Time Magazine carried an article entitled, Does Heaven Exist? And they asked over 100,000 American adults, do you believe the existence of heaven where people live forever with God uh, after they die? 81% said they believed in heaven, 13% said they did not. The survey also asked, immediately after death, which one of the following do you believe happens? 61% said they would go directly to heaven. 15% said they'd go to purgatory. 5% said they'd be reincarnated. 4% said that death ends our existence. And 1% said, yeah, well, they're going to go to hell. And that question of what happens when I die is a question that probably all of us have pondered. Because you know what? The statistics on death are very impressive. One out of one of us are going to die unless the Lord comes back during our time. And so we've all had family members that have passed away, that have gone on to eternity. Well, what happens? What will they experience? Where, do we, where will we go? How long will it take? Will we know people? Uh, will they know us? What will judgment be like? And these kind of questions are in our mind when we think about uh, when we die, and especially when we have family members who die. Now, I think the place to find these answers is not through pop culture or through what someone said they might have experienced. I think the place to find these answers is in the Word of God. Now, we are a Bible-believing church, okay? Now, you need to know that the Bible is uh, not just one book, it's 66 books. Now, this will be basic for many, but uh, just to go back over it, it's important. Uh, It's broken up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Contract, 
really was written to God's people, the Jews. And so there are many things in the Old Testament that while they're foundational principles for our lives, we don't follow anymore. Because it wasn't a covenant between us and God. It was a covenant between God and his people, the Israelites. So there are certain food requirements in the Old Testament that we don't follow today because we're not under that contract. For example, the Jews were forbidden from eating pork. How many of you are glad we're not under that contract anymore? Amen. We love bacon, right? It's, bacon's a good thing. And, and, uh, but we're not under that contract. Now, there are some principles that came out of the old contract and went to the new contract, the new covenant, the New Testament. And how do we know that? Well, Jesus affirmed several of them. That's one of the ways. The apostles affirmed several of the principles of the Old Testament. And then there are just some good foundational principles in the Old Testament. Read the book of Proverbs. All of these statements on life and living and, and how, to, how to live a life of godliness. The book of Psalms, there are these great prayers before God. How do you pray before God? And what kind of, uh, how, what, what kind of emotion do you feel even as you pray before God? And you see God's... Ex- so it sets the foundation. But friends, we're not under that old contract. And so we're studying the Old Testament for a benefit of learning and getting a foundation. But we're studying, we're New Testament people because we live under this new covenant, this new contract, the relationship that we have with God through Christ. And we learn through the apostles and, and, and the early uh, church leaders. And so that's the scripture. Now, why do we believe in the scripture opposed to, as opposed to every other religious text in the world? Well, the Bible is unique, written by over 40 authors, uh, written in several different languages, and written on different continents over 1,500 years. The Bible writes very consistently about the story of God on hundreds of controversial topics. And you say, well, how did that happen? How could one book or, or one writing, so many different books, be written and so consistent over 1,500 years, over all of these different time periods, and by peasants and kings and, and philosophers and fishermen? How could all of these individuals, many of them who did not know each other, write so consistently on so many controversial topics? I mean, for example, if I just ask this group right here, there's probably 100 people in the room here today. If I ask you all, let's talk about 10 of the most controversial topics of our day. How many of us think that we come up with uh, probably a hundred different thoughts? Maybe some would be aligned, maybe some wouldn't. And if I just said, write on your paper right now, and listen, we live in the same period of time, have basically the same backgrounds or very similar backgrounds. We live in the same country, and, and yet we would have all kinds of different opinions. These individuals wrote over all of these different thoughts, all these controversial topics, and yet it was consistent. The Bible reads really almost like a novel from beginning to end. That's far different from other world religions where maybe one author would write uh, their thoughts or their beliefs. We see a consistency in the Bible. I believe in the Bible not only because of the consistency of the message, but also because I believe in the prophecies. That in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets wrote about things that were to come. Over 300 specific prophecies, in particular, about Jesus himself, what he would be like, how he would die, where he would be born, etc., etc. All of these things, very specific about who Jesus was. The bottom line is, we are a Bible-believing people. We believe what the Word of God teaches, and it teaches on life and love and relationships and finances and, and how to handle um, our relationship with God, and of course, what Christ did for us. So many topics that are good for our life and living, what to do in the middle of persecution and how to handle our tongue and all kinds of things in the Bible. So that's why we're a Bible-believing 
uh, church. And so when we teach things in the Bible, sometimes they're uncomfortable. Sometimes they're challenging. But friends, as a teacher of the Bible, I have a responsibility not to skirt the issues that would be less comfortable. Is that true? I have a responsibility to simply teach the, all the counsel of the Word of God, whatever that says, as uncomfortable as sometimes as, as it might be and sometimes as hopeful as it might be. So this is one of those topics. What happens when we die? And one of the places we find that, one of the best places, is Luke chapter 16. This is the account of the rich man and Lazarus. It's, it's the only passage in the Bible that I know of that discusses the thoughts and the emotions and the conversation of someone who has died. Now, there's some debate over whether or not this is a parable, meaning kind of a, a spiritual story that Jesus would tell to describe events or happenings, or if it's something that actually happened. Well, whether or not, we don't know, but the parables, even in them themselves, they teach truth. And so we're going to read this story where Jesus teaches truth about what happens when we die. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Here's some principles that we're going to learn through this story today. What happens when we die? Number one, your spirit departs your body. When this old physical body wears out, uh, our spirit continues to exist. The Bible teaches that over and over and over, that we are more than physical beings. The bodies house our souls. I remember when my grandmother died in 1995, and uh, we stood at her casket, and my mom, this was her mom there in the casket, and she looked at her mom and said, beyond a shadow of a doubt, she was looking at her, she said, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'm reminded now more than ever of the principle that this is, that my mom is no longer here. Is that true? You all been in those moments? And you see that physical body, that body that you have clung to and loved so much, and yet you know that their spirit no longer animates that body. We know instinctively that we are more than just bodies. That's not who we are. I've, I've read that the cells of the body completely reproduce themselves every seven years. That means there's not one cell in your body that's the same ten years ago. Physically, on a cellular level, you're different than you were ten years ago. But the Bible says, don't focus on what you see, focus on what you don't see. Focus on what's inside, what animates us, the inner person, what God gave you as your soul, your spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says, we know that when this tent that we live in now is taken down, when we die and leave these bodies, we will have a wonderful new body in heaven, homes, in a heavenly home that will be ours forevermore, made by God himself. How many of you love to camp? Raise your hand if you love to camp. Yeah? How many of you love to tent camp? See, some of you, your hands went back down. You thought camping was this, you know, an RV with air conditioning. You know what I'm saying? Camping is a tent, right? And you're out there, and you forget the air mattress. You're on the hard ground. And uh, I, I don't know about you. I don't, I don't mind tent camping. It's not, it's not as fun when uh, there's several people compacted in there together, and, uh, and you're, you're laying on a root. But uh, years ago, I went to uh, Colorado with some friends. And we did a very spontaneous camping trip. We weren't there to camp. We were singing in an a cappella group around the country. And we happened to be in Colorado. We said, hey, we're in Colorado. Let's go camp. Everybody said, yeah, it's a great idea, me and two other guys in the group. 
We took the uh, school van, the college van, and we went up the side of the mountain. We had been staying with some people there in Colorado. They just loaned us a tent and a few uh, items, uh, uh, camping items. We took off up this this uh, hillside, this mountainside. Now, let me just put it this way. On the ground level uh, where we had first started ascending, it was summer. By the time we had ascended to however many thousand of feet, it was winter. And we were unprepared for that. And I remember we had a nice fire going for a while. We set up our little tent, our little rustic camper selves, you know. And uh, there we were. We went sleeping in that tent. It wasn't until about 2 o'clock in the morning that I woke up and was absolutely frozen to the bone, to the core. The fire had died out. That tent was no longer a comfortable home to live in. And I moved and slept in the van for the rest of the night. And uh, I know this. Tents are not bad for temporary shelters, but they're not, they're not made to be a, a, a long-standing dwelling. Now, how many of you realize that with your body, right? Your body's getting older, and you hurt in places. I mean, sometimes I'll wake up in the morning, and I didn't even do anything the day before, and I hurt. I'm like, what happened? Did I run a marathon in the middle of the night? What happened to my body in the middle of the night? I don't understand it. Some young people are like, ah, get out of here, you old geezer. You know, you'll be all right. Listen, your tent's going to get old too, friend. I'm just telling you right now. Tents are temporary. And the Bible says right now, your body, God made your body. He made you body, mind, and spirit. We ought to be uh, developing all of those, but your body is eventually going to wear out. That's just part of life. Now, a number of people recount what happens maybe in out-of-body type kind of moments. Now, I don't know always what to do with these, but I'll, I'll, I'll recount a few. USU News and World Report, March 31st, 1997, had a feature article, Is There Life After Death? And he said, near-death experiences may, may be uh, physiological or they may be uh, peepholes into the world beyond. And the article quoted Bruce Grayson, psychiatrist at the University of Virginia Medical Center, who said those who have out-of-body experiences become enamored with the spiritual part of life and less so with possessions, power, and prestige. And they begin to share stories of people who had maybe seen certain things or felt certain things. I remember the movie just a few years ago, one of the better movies on this kind of topic called Miracles from Heaven that retells the story of Annabelle Green who suffered from pseudo-obstruction motility disorder, a rare disorder that prevents one from adequately digesting. You remember the story where she fell from out of a tree 30 feet down and uh, when she came to, when after several, um, a long period of time she came to, she recounted stories that she had experienced uh, in those moments of, of, um, of death. Now, I don't always know what to do with those things. But here's what I do know. I do know that when we die on this earth, that our next moment, uh, our next breath is in eternity. And I'm open to the possibility there are people that have experienced some of those things, seen some of those things, uh, seen a window into those ideas. I don't build a theology based on that. I just find it interesting. And I believe that some of those experiences verify that there is a world beyond the physical senses. The Apostle Paul said that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows, but I know this man was caught up to paradise and he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now, Paul was talking about himself. God gave Paul sort of a moment, a window into eternity. By the way, 
God did the same thing for the Apostle John. That's why the book of Revelation has been written. It was his vision, a vision that God had given him of eternity, of heaven. Paul said, when you depart from the body, you will be with the Lord, and it is far better. Dr. Herschel Hobbs was a respected pastor for well over 50 years, and when his wife was dying of cancer, she asked him, Herschel, what will it be like when I die? And Dr. Hobbs said he really couldn't fully answer that question because he had never experienced life after death. And he said, honey, I'm not sure exactly what that moment will be like, but I do know this for sure. I will sit here and hold your hand on this side of heaven until Jesus comes to take your hand on the other side. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, there's therefore we are always confident in this, that as long as we are at home with the body, in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight, and we're confident, I say then, I prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. So there is a clear scriptural indication that your body is temporary, and that when uh, your time on this earth is over, that, that you will then, your spirit will depart your body. Now, the second thing is your eternal destiny will be experienced and known immediately. There's no waiting room. Luke chapter 16, verse 22 said, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. <clears throat> now, the, good, the news is not good for everybody. The rich man died and went to Hades. It had nothing to do with him being rich. It only had to do with, uh, with his life. And it's described here as a place of pain and loneliness, regret and guilt and despair. He didn't go there because he was rich. He went there because he was self-centered and ignored God and the people in need. Now, the word here is translated hell. It's more appropriately translated Hades. And I know a lot of people today, even in Christianity, have a hard time believing in hell. Time magazine showed that only 63% of people believe in hell. But friends, I have a responsibility before God to teach the whole counsel of God and what this book says. And whether it makes us uncomfortable or not, I think we have to teach what the Word of God says. There's a concept today called universalism. Universalism says it doesn't matter what you believe, all roads lead to heaven anyway. In other words, everybody's going there. In other words, it doesn't matter. The only people that would experience separation from God for eternity would be the worst of the worst. And, of course, that's nobody in this room. Nobody would ever say, well, I'm the worst of the worst. It's always somebody else. And so we all often believe, well, everybody is going to go to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. And that sounds really great, except for it's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus warned more about hell than he talked about heaven. He said, hell is a place where the worm doesn't die and fire isn't quenched and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And friends, listen, I would believe in hell if just one verse talked about it, if Jesus just mentioned it one time. But over 54 verses in the Bible describe this place. Now, let's say you're eating at a restaurant and before um, your meal comes, you uh, hurry to the restroom and on the way back to your table, you realize there's a fire in the kitchen and uh, you see this fire blazing out of control, what would you do? Here all the patrons are in the restaurant, happily eating their meals, smelling a little bit of smoke, thinking maybe they're doing some roasting in the kitchen. You don't really know. 
And suddenly, what would you do? If it were me, I would come back as uncomfortable as it would be. I would sound the alarm for everybody else in the, in the, in the restaurant, letting them know that, that there is destruction that is coming. And I would hit that alarm, and I would yell out to everybody, get out, there's a fire. And while maybe people wouldn't want to hear it, some people may not believe me. Some people would be like, I don't want to be interrupted. I'm in the middle of my steak. They, they might think you're crazy, but in the end, they would realize that you were telling the truth. And friends, when it comes to this teaching in the Bible, as difficult as it is, we believe the Bible is true. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, the prophet Ezekiel describes, I've made you a watchman, and when I say to you, the wicked man, you will surely die, and you don't warn him or speak out to dissuade him to leave his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man and he doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sins, but you would have saved yourselves. In other words, there is this responsibility that we all have to realize what the Word of God says and then to heed the warning as well. So this rich man experiences this this suffering. He ignored God's warnings, ignored God's blessings, ignored God's people, lived however he wanted to live. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says, There are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Your will be done. And those to whom God will say, Your will be done. All those who experience hell choose to do so on their own. So that's the bad news side of the story. Jesus describes in Luke chapter 16 these two individuals. These two individuals and what they experienced in eternity after death. But the good news of the story is the poor man was taken by the, by the angel to Abraham's side. The NIV study version of the Bible describes this as a place of blessedness to which the righteous dead will go to await future vindication. But he was there immediately. Remember when Jesus said to the dying thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Now friends, that rules out purgatory. Nowhere does the Bible teach that a believer has to go to a place where he or she, or he or she is purged of sin. Jesus paid for our sin once and for all on the cross. It is impossible for us to pray to pay for it for ourselves. It is impossible for other people once we've died to pray us into heaven. The Bible never indicates that. And again, the Bible is our source of authority. God's not going to make us us pay double. He's already paid too high of a price. There's no way you can pay for your own sin. Even Father Richard O'Brien, professor of theology at Notre Dame, wrote. There is for all practical purposes no basis for the doctrine of purgatory. The church acknowledges that 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 doctrine was enunciated first at the Council of Lyons in 1274 A.D. The story in Luke chapter 16 also refutes reincarnation. Nowhere does the Bible even hint that your spirit departs your body and shows up again in in some uh, animal or some other object. And... uh, and thankfully, it doesn't indicate that there will be any cats either that we can, you know, embody. You know, we don't like cats or any. I'm just kidding, we do. It also rolls out, rules out soul sleep. Some people believe when you die, your spirit just kind of sleeps, kind of like when you turn out the light and eventually it'll be turned on again someday. The Bible doesn't indicate that at all. In fact, when it comes to the rich man and Lazarus, you see they weren't asleep. They were fully conscious, fully aware. The Bible does call death sleeping sometimes, but it's, every time it refers to that, it's just simply referred to them, to, to them passing away. 
talking about the body sleeping. Friends, for the Christ follower, there is immediate presence with the Lord. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 says, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is a tremendous comfort to us in the moments of my dad's passing this summer. Uh, in the hospital, with all the nurses, with anybody who would come in, dad would say immediately as soon as he met someone, I'm going to heaven. I'm ready. Are you going to heaven? And I remember one moment in particular, he grabbed a nurse's hand as, uh, as she was saying goodbye to him, and he looked her in the eye and said the same thing. I'm going to heaven. Are you going to heaven? And he held on to her hand for a moment. In that kind of poignant moment to say, this is important. These are my last words. You need to listen. And he said it over and over and over again to us. I'm going to heaven. And so this was a man who knew his eternal destiny. Unashamedly, courageously knew what the next moment of his life would be like. I'm going from this life to the next. He believed in eternal kingdom. He believed that Jesus had died for his sins. He believed and knew that he had accepted that payment for his sin. He knew that when he stood before God, he would stand, stand as a man who was clean before God because when God looked at him, despite his sin, despite his failures, he would look at him and he would see the, 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 the cross. He would see what Christ did for him on the cross. He would see the payment for penalty that, that Christ had given him. And friends, there is tremendous comfort in that truth. In those final days for all of us, we sang songs and we prayed and yes, we cried and we wrote letters and we held hands and we all talked, but we all had this tremendous confidence that we knew that this was a journey that we knew where the destination was. We knew what the next moment, while we didn't know exactly what it would be like for him, we knew that the next moments that there would be comfort and peace and joy. You see, as a follower of Christ, we're promised that we will experience heaven for eternity. The Bible says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Some of you, you live with physical pain every day. Think about that. There will be no more pain in heaven. That's a great joy. Some of you live with emotional hurt. No more tears in heaven. He will wipe every tear from their eye. You know, when I was a boy, I would, I would hear about streets of gold and walls of jasper and harps. And frankly, it sounded a little boring to me. I don't really like harp music. But you have to remember that all of that in the book of Revelation is symbolic language. It's just John's way to try to describe all the beauty and the majesty of what he was trying to grab a hold of as he looked at heaven, as Jesus gave him a window into what heaven would be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. We can't even imagine it. And I don't know about you guys, but it's taken, it was, the Lord created this beautiful world in, in six days, and imagine what He would create for us now than what's been more than 2,000 years. Man, if you could have one special day when you would just enjoy yourself, what would you do for that day? I mean, what would you do? Boy, I'd like to be in Maui, or boy, I'd like to be at the Final Four, and uh, boy, I'd like to, what, what, would they, what would you do in that special day? I'd like to go to Augusta with three of my best friends on a sunny day and just play golf all day. These are the things our minds can imagine. 
The Bible says about heaven, no eye has conceived, no ear has heard, no mind has, has even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. John describes it this way in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Heaven is going to be a place of people and reunions. And I, I've had people in my life that have passed away and uh, have died, people that love the Lord, and I look forward to being with them again. I look forward to sitting down in eternity those moments after moments of just conversation after just conversation. And you say, well, wait a minute. I have friends and family that they've died and I don't know about their eternity. And what I would say to you is this. We're not God. And God gets to be the judge and he gets to decide, you know. And, uh, but I hold on to the idea and the fact that I've had a lot of family members that have just loved the Lord. And I look forward to seeing those individuals. And I look forward to those moments where God says now the dwelling uh, of God is with men and he will be with them and they will be his people and God will be their God and, um, and he will be with them forever. Just imagine, friends, seeing the creator of the universe face to face, bowing before him and worshiping him. Imagine having Jesus teaching us and telling us the things that we miss throughout our lives. Man. Roger Chambers said one time that there will be a lot of people in heaven with flat foreheads because they'll be like, oh, now I understand. Wow, it's amazing. The Bible says his servants will serve him. I think heaven will be a place of service where we're, where we're able to worship and serve the Lord. We're not going to sit around in heaven on a cloud just resting the whole time. I'd get bored with that. There'll be tasks. We'll, we'll, we'll know that the satisfaction of a job well done, growing and learning and improving. You know, when we sing the song, when we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And, and when we talk about eternity, it's very difficult for us to understand what that's like. But, man, when I think about just the best things of this life, they'll pair in comparison, pale in comparison to the best things that God has for us in heaven. Heaven should motivate us. It should motivate us to be evangelistic and share our faith with other people. Heaven should motivate us to be the kind of people that God would be proud of. Heaven should motivate us to be people of worship today because we're going to worship for eternity. Because, friends, we remember that this is all good right here, but, man, the best is yet to come. I love that old story of Glenn Wheeler, the retired preacher who has since gone to be with the Lord. He used to tell his wife, Evelyn, or about his wife, Evelyn, when she died several years ago. In reminiscing about her, he'd say, you know what I miss about her? Or not the big things, but the little things. Like after church on Sunday morning, we'd turn out, or after the church on Sunday morning, we'd turn out the lights and lock the building. And everybody was gone. Then we'd walk to the car, and she'd slip her arm in mine, and she'd whisper, you're a good man, Glenn Wheeler. He said, boy, I'd like to hear her say, you're a good man, Glenn, just one more time. You know what else I miss? He said, I miss her cooking. You could, and, and you could look at Glenn and know he, he, he liked her cooking. And um, he said she was such a great cook. Then after we'd eat a delicious meal, she'd come around behind and pick up our plates. And she'd say, keep your fork, Glenn. Boy, I'd like to hear that, keep your fork, Glenn. He said, because I knew the best was yet to come. She cooked up some wonderful dessert, and I get to keep my fork and have that wonderful dessert. Then Glenn mused, you know what? Sometimes now, late at night, when I'm lonely and I fight back the tears, it's almost like I can hear the Lord say, keep your fork, Glenn, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. And friends, that's what I believe about heaven, that the best is yet to come. 
that the place of no more pain or mourning or crying or tears is, is yet to come for us. And I know that when we die, we don't have to fear death. That if you're someone has put your hope and your faith in that payment that God gave for you, that love that God gave for you on the cross, that you know that you will go from this life to the next, and you know that that best is yet to come. And that compels us to tell as many people as possible about this. When will all this happen? Well, the Bible says it will come like a thief in the night. We have no idea when the Lord's going to return, and, uh, and we have no idea when our moment is going to come either. But when it comes, friends, we need to be ready, and we need to be ready to have uh, that moment with God. Well, I'm going to pray for you, and we are going to have a moment with God right here today, and the moment is called communion. It's a chance for us to take the bread and the juice and to remember his body and his blood. If you're a follower of Christ, you want to take it, take it in remembrance. Take it in um, a meaningful way. If, if you're someone who is just learning, you're growing for the first time, you can feel free to let the communion pass on by and use this as just a time of prayer and meditation, a quiet moment from the week of all the things that you've had to do and just a moment to say, thank you, God, for loving me today. Help me know you more. Help me learn who you are more. So I want to pray for you as we go into this time. God, thank you so much for moments like these, moments where we're able to learn together from the word of God. And Lord, as uncomfortable and as difficult as it is to think about the reality of an eternity separated from you, God, I pray that we would realize the promise and the hope and the joy that we have looking forward to an eternity with you. God, thank you for the promise of heaven. Thank you for uh, Christ who gave his very best for us. And now in these moments of communion, God, we worship you. We honor you in quietness and meditation. God, we think about the greatest gift of all. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.